You know, with the dentist, I never take Novocaine, but I didn't need it today. But there are times when uh, there's a certain sensation. <laughs> but actually, I have learned that the important thing is not to define that sensation as pain. It's just a sensation. And if you find the thought coming that, well, it is pain, then accept the thought that, okay, but it doesn't matter if it's painful. In other words, don't reject the pain. One time I had to go, I haven't taken Novocaine in years, but one time the pain was rather intense. But I told myself, well, this is only right here and right now. Reality is much bigger than this little, little tooth of mine. So I lived in that reality and noticed that this reality here was uh, bothering me a little bit, but it didn't matter that much. I found that uh, with that attitude, I can lie there while he's working and not even know what he's doing. I can work out points of philosophy that are a little difficult to figure out or write music in my head. And um, Really, it's a very important lesson in life because all of us have experiences that are not easy. Some of us have what we choose to call tragic experiences. We don't have to call them tragic. Just accept that this is what life is. You know, when I see a movie and I see a painful thing, instead of recoiling from it, I try to put myself right in that position. And I say, well, what attitude would I need to be able to bear that pain or bear that tragedy or bear that whatever it is? And I find that uh, it's a very good practice for real life because in real life you will have to go through your own particular pains, not necessarily that one, but some other. But if we can have the right attitude, we find that nothing needs to touch us. And I've, I've uh, discovered that that's true. Just remain even-minded all the time, even-minded and cheerful. This is what uh, Master taught us. So anyway, I have been reading his... I've been reading his characteristics, and it's absolutely wonderful to ponder his greatness in so many different ways. One thing I noted about him was his always blissful outlook on life. I would notice this fact not only in his calm, inward expression, but also from the deep bliss I often felt in his presence. What you need to do, too, is try to... Excuse me a minute. Yeah, there's nothing worse than a sneeze that won't come. <laughs> anyway, um, I, to try to feel that everything that you are doing, the underlying reality, is bliss. You know, I had this dream. I, I've shared it with you before. It was in Florence. We'd been meeting with our distributors in Italy. And then I stayed in a hotel in Florence. And I woke up with this wonderful inspiration. I wanted to write it down, but there was no paper in the room. There usually is. Usually I carry something I can write on, nothing. 
And so I finally found a little paper doily under a glass, and I tried writing it out there. But this was the inspiration I, I tried to write, that uh, I had, had dreamed of thousands of people, and I knew that the one thing they all wanted was bliss. And they were mafiosi types, tough business types, all kinds of people. But all of them, they all wanted bliss. They just didn't know where it was. They didn't know how to find it. So the mafiosi types thought, well, we'll get it by punishing people, by riding hard on them, by taking from them, by killing them, by revenge. But all they really want is bliss. They just haven't figured it out yet. And it takes many incarnations to figure out that that's really all life is about. We should learn to find how bliss can be discovered in every situation. And you know, it's interesting. For example, after a world war like World War II, all the novels that came out about World War II. I've just been reading a Helen McGuinness novel, and that's about World War II. Why? People suffered so much. Why do they want to read books about it, all that suffering? It's just a strange thing in this world of duality. Um, like this woman who came to Master and was, was telling him all the things she'd gone through in this harrowing operation that she'd endured. And Master finally asked her, when did you have this operation? Oh, Twenty years ago. <laughs> well... People like to hang on to their pains. Why? Because in, a, in pain there's a certain amount of joy. I'll never forget going to Carnegie Hall, was it? Or no, <coughs> Metropolitan um, thing in New York. And there was Raphael Kubelitz conducting a Smetana um, symphony. And I had just bought a little dictation machine. And I thought, well, this would be interesting to see. It'll pick up sounds all the way from the stage there. So I turned it up as high as I could, and then I pressed it. I pressed the wrong button. And the, rec the man had tested the machine to see if it worked. And so the whole hall was filled with, hello, hello, testing, one, two. <laughs> and so help me, got up to four before I could finally find that stop button <laughs> and the conductor whirled around. <laughs> it was one of life's supremely embarrassing moments. And back in the back of my mind, there was the thought, this congratulatory thought, what a great story this will make. <laughs> and so people like to tell stories about tragedy because it's a good story. Really, in pain, there's a certain amount of pleasure. And in pleasure, there's a certain amount of pain. Uh, the, you have the pleasure, you think, well, but it won't last. And so you sort of, uh, there's always that anxiety. When will I lose it? Bésame mucho como si fuera la, esta noche la última vez. Kiss me as if it was the last time ever. And this is sort of the way people cling to their pleasures. But everything is duality. And if you can really learn in the midst of difficulties to see the other side, you can remain removed from both of them. So you go to the dentist, 
And it's a very good test of a test of these things. Just don't define it as pain. And if the sensation becomes such that you have no choice but to define it as pain, what else can you define it as? <laughs> then don't say it's bad to have this pain. Say, I'll, I can learn from it. You can remove your mind. And when I see a movie, and I see tragic things and difficult things and so on, I always try to put myself in that position. Could I handle it? And uh, uh, I feel that it's a very good test for me. That instead of recoiling, oh, no, not that. Yes, someday you may have to go through that. Someday you may be confronted by somebody who wants to kill you. Let him do it. What does it matter? Get yourself into that mental attitude where you can accept anything. And uh, you'll have a peaceful life. Well, anyway, this bliss that Master talked about came to him because he was completely even-minded. He, he was not attached to anything. You don't have to do things to attain bliss. You have to remove those things that cover that bliss. Bliss is like gold buried in the earth. You don't have to make the earth gold. You have to uncover that gold so that it will shine. So you have that bliss in you. But you think, I need this, I want to do this, I'm attached to this, I don't want that to happen, I want this person to come, I wish this person would leave me alone. All the thoughts that come to people. If you can get rid of all that, it's not that you become apathetic. You find that then you begin to enjoy things. And uh, actually you can enjoy anything, you know. There is a, excuse me a moment while I pant a little. There is a story of Benvenuto Cellini. He was a great sculptor in Italy. And uh, one time the Pope threw him into prison. The reason he did so was that he wanted Cellini to do another statue for him for free. And Cellini said, I'm starving, I need to be paid first. And the Pope had the power, so he put him in this dungeon. And Cellini was able to take it. And later he said, if you want to know what bliss is, and then he arranged, he described his own situation, be arranged to, uh, arranged to be thrown into a dungeon that is only, that is damp. Your mattress is damp. Rats are running around the floor. You have only enough light every day to read for one hour. And you can read the Bible or some scripture. And the rest of the time, rather, there's nothing else to do. Think of God. And he said that he felt so much bliss that he would be glad to be in that same situation. Well, a man that stubborn, the Pope had to give in. <laughs> and he did. But the thing is that uh, really circumstances don't make you happy. We have an ideal community here. When I look at the tulips at Crystal Hermitage, I think could paradise be more beautiful? But we have to have that attitude that wherever we are, that same bliss can be ours. So Master gave that beautiful example in his life that whatever happened, he was always blissful. He was deeply loving to all and concerned for their well-being. This is something that people ought to realize. 
A guru doesn't come into this world for his own good. He comes here because he has this deep feeling. He knows how much he suffered over millions of incarnations to attain freedom. And most people, when they attain that freedom, they say, well, I've had it. There are very few people who come back again and again. They don't need to. They take on this, the pains of this world. They don't need to. They come back because they want to help us. And then people say, yeah, and what do you got to give me? It's certainly not an easy thing, but he had love for everybody. And he wanted to help us. It's such a beautiful thing to realize. My mother once visited me at Mount Washington, and she was scheduled to have an interview with him. I asked him beforehand, Sir, will you please pray, pray that she be brought onto this path? Yes, he said so almost abruptly that I wasn't sure he'd even heard me correctly. At the end of his interview with her, and as she was leaving the room, he followed her to the doorway. They, they shook hands in farewell. He continued to hold her hand, however. Speaking out loud, he prayed to God and to our line of gurus and said, May you be brought onto this path. This, for me personally, was a deeply moving mo moment. With tears of gratitude, I touched his feet. That was a small thing. But in so many ways, you know, in Los Angeles, he used to walk up and down Main Street. This is before I knew him. And uh, there are all these bars there. Why did he do it? He wanted to tune into these people to keep them from getting possessed by, you know, when you're alcoholic or in a state of stupor, that's when you open yourself to astral entities. And uh, these things are real. I had this experience because when I, when I came to him in the beginning, Really, I have to say that uh, everything was new to me. I'd never read spiritual teachings. It was by reason alone I figured it all out that that's the only possible answer. But uh, when I heard about possession by astral entities, I thought, well, this is fascinating. What's this all about? Astral entities, possession, and so on. I said, I've, I've got to find out what this is. So I remember I dreamed one night. I was in a party. And at a certain point, I said, it's time for me to meet a disincarnate entity. And I left the party, and I still clearly, clearly see the empty room that I entered and the floorboards and the dark windows outside. And uh, I stood in the middle of the room, and I said, all right, I want to find out what this is all about. Come on. And all of a sudden... I began to sort of go up and like in waves and be, I found myself being sucked out the window. And I thought, well, this is enough. <laughs> and <clears throat> I tried to come back and I, I wasn't sure I had the strength to. So I called Master. And suddenly I was awake again and everything was over. And I asked him about it later. He said, yes, these things happen. But you know, in bars, Many people who commit murder, for example, they don't want to do it. It's some entity possessing them that makes them do it. These are realities. And don't ever let yourself get into a state of blank mind or stupor or uh, drunkenness can make you that way. 
So these astral entities, the low astral entities, hover around such places looking for opportunities. So Master would walk up and down and try to help protect these people. But his love for everybody was incredible. He didn't have to come in the first place. And yet he took on all the betrayals, all the heartaches, all the desperation of earning money to make things possible for people and so on. What a huge job. And yet, all for our sake. When I think what he went through, when he didn't have to go through any of it, there was nothing in it for him. You know, one time I too, I was trying to promote a record album that I'd made. So I went to a station that was there and I said, well, I'm during the interview with this man, I said, I hope to build a retreat with the money from this and other things. Take me a little money, huh? I said, I thought, what are you asking me that question for? I'm not doing this to make money. I'm doing this to help people. It's debasing when people treat you like that. But it happens. People don't, you know, if you don't have any motives, then naturally people think everybody has some motive. If you won't tell us what your motive is, to become a millionaire, to become famous, to become uh, whatever, then it must be a dark motive. And so that to have no motives is to be judged. That's why Jesus said that no man who has left everything, well, everybody who leaves everything, family, husband, wife, father, mother, sister, brother, everything, for my sake and the Gospels, will find, will be blessed a hundredfold and have received persecution. That's a part of it. Like the beautiful story of St. Teresa of Avila. In her old age, she was crossing a stream and her horse slipped and she fell into this stream. It was in spate. And she looked there. Her followers thought she was about to be drowned. And uh, suddenly she found herself on the other bank and her clothes were dry. And she saw Jesus standing there. And Jesus said with a smile, Don't feel too badly, Teresa. This is how I treat all my friends. And so she said, Oh, my Lord, that's why you have so few. <laughs> but these things happen on the path. Always, Master was very much the leader. Wherever he went, something about him commanded respect. This fact was clearly evident, of course, in the demeanor of the thugs who menaced him during his early years. I mentioned those stories earlier. But he always emanated a quiet aura of authority. Well, I said earlier, but you haven't read the book, maybe. Oh, well. <clears throat> I'll tell you one beautiful one, then. He was about to enter Lakeside Park in Chicago, and... Uh, the, pol the policeman outside said, don't go in there now. It's where we ourselves don't dare go in at night. And Master said, I'm not afraid. And so he went in and sat down on the bench to enjoy the moonrise. And suddenly this big thug came, give me a dime. So Master reached in his pocket, gave him a dime. Give me a quarter. <laughs> gave him a quarter. Give me 50 cents. He gave him 50 cents. Give me a dollar! Master decided this is going to go on forever. 
So he jumped to his feet. He said, "Get out!" And the man was—he was so terrified. He, I don't want your money. Well, I don't want your money. Started running for the horizon, and Master sat down and enjoyed the moonrise. And uh, later on, um, the policeman, when Master came out, the policeman said, "What did you say to that man? We're afraid of him ourselves." And I said, "Oh, we had a little understanding." <laughs> But he, he had power. There was this one time. It was the brother of Madurga, who was his, one of his close disciples. But he was very belligerent, and probably didn't like the way that his sister had been trapped by this charlatan. So one day he decided he would come up the stairs and beat Master up, and boast to everybody how he had beaten up this charlatan, and. Uh, Master saw him, and the coming, in a vision. So when the man reached the doorway, Master said, "I know why you've come," but he said, "I want you to know I'm very strong, physically. I could easily beat you, but I will not beat you physically. Nevertheless, I warn you, don't cross that threshold. Go on, prophet. What can you do to me?" And he strode across the threshold. And suddenly fell to his to his uh, uh, on the floor, and shouted, "I'm on fire! I'm on fire!" And he went running out of the house, and he was rolling around on the ground outside. And Master came and touched him, and the man was fine. And the man said, "Don't come near me! Don't come near me!" And he went in, had his wife get everything, and they left right away. But Master had great power, but he didn't use that power usually. He used it when it was justified. He used it when Divine Mother told him to. But one time, for example, he was having there was a nurse who was appointed to him, and he was going through great physical troubles. And uh, the nurse sort of had something against him. He was this Indian Swami and commanding everybody's respect. He won't have my respect. And she used to sort of pull his limbs around and. Uh, really, it was a lot. And Master suddenly, he said, "This blue light," he saw, and he heard this voice saying, "Give it to her." And he, <laughs> and he said, "No, Mother, I won't do it." And so he didn't. But sometimes he saw that it would help. Then he would do it. Well, anyway, I'm rambling on. One woman in the Hollywood Church congregation. Told me that when she first saw the master, it was through a restaurant window. Suddenly, then she tugged at her husband's sleeve. Look, dear, through that window. That has to be the most spiritual man I've ever seen. He was always and quite naturally in control of every situation. Wherever he went, people deferred to him. Speaking for myself, though I loved him deeply. I always held him in great awe. Seventeen, he had a deep, strong voice, filled with power. There was no self-abasement in his humility. There was a, a suggestion, rather, of his attunement to the power of the universe. Yet there was lightness also. One night at the monks' retreat at Twenty-nine Palms in California, I was suddenly awakened. By a feeling of a great divine presence in the room, 
I was to be sleeping along with several other men on the floor of the living room. At once I sat up to meditate. Then I looked out the front window and saw Master walking slowly outside. Instantly I got up and went out and touched his feet. Later he commented with a smile, I thought I was seeing a ghost. <laughs> you know, his humanity was great fun. He was very, he had a lovely sense of humor, and so perfectly natural. So in this moment, which of course for me was a very holy one, he didn't want to be too serious about it. So he said, well, I thought I was seeing a ghost. He had great divine power, as we saw in the story of that thug which I told you about. Yet he was respectful toward, even appreciative of other people's opinions even when these differed widely from his own. One time a disciple, Dan Boon, wrote him a scathing letter which reflected the delusions Boon himself was going through at the time. When the master next saw him, he said to Boon, You should take up writing. That was the best letter Satan ever wrote me. <laughs> there was no sarcasm in his voice, only admiration and respect. He wanted nothing from others except their own highest happiness. Once, after he scolded a disciple, the disciple said, But you will forgive me, won't you? His question surprised the master. Pausing briefly, he then said, Well, what else can I do? He had a keen insight into human nature. Is there some sort of a drink I can do here? Gotta have a drink. Just enough, that's enough. That was. <clears throat> he had keen insight into human nature. For even though a master no longer has any delusions, to the point of wondering how anyone could be so blinded by them, he well remembers all the incarnations he himself suffered as he went through those same delusions himself. Yogananda offered the above, the above explanation indeed for the reason why Jesus would have had first to transcend delusion in a former life to be able to help others in this one. No human being, even a master, is ever directly a son of God. I have read that claim on the part of the disciples of other paths besides the Christian. Yogananda's answer to that was, what would be the point? It is the destiny of every soul to merge back into oneness with God. But if a miraculously produced direct incarnation of God were to descend on earth, what encouragement would that give to human beings to go and do likewise. Yogananda was a mirror to the highest self in everyone. <clears throat> Thus alone could he bring out the best in people. He was inwardly childlike. I myself had always thought that his age must be solemn, smiling only in concession to the weaknesses of ordinary human beings. 
to correct this impression of me, he once bought a few toys. This episode occurred at his Twenty-Nine Palms retreat. We were seated in the kitchen at the time. He asked that something we brought to him. Whatever it was came enclosed in a paper bag. The master asked someone to turn out the light. We heard a few chuckles, along with a little crinkling paper. Suddenly sparks began flying out of the barrel of a toy revolver. <laughs> the light came on. Then the master looked at me. How do you like that, Walter? <laughs> Walter was the name by which he always called me. It's fine, sir. I replied, still trying to get over my astonishment. Then, gazing at me penetratingly, he spoke, quoting the words of Jesus, Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. He finished that charming lesson by firing from another toy pistol, an object which rose uh, an object which rose into the air, then opened into a parachute. We all watched solemnly <laughs> as the parachute descended to the ground. I never saw him play with those toys again. I suspect he had bought them only for my sake. He laughed readily, but when he chose to be serious, no one could make him even smile. His control in such ways was remarkable. I never saw him succumb to hilarity. His generosity extended far beyond mere money or material gain, gifts. It included also, for example, allowing others to have the last word, deferring to their opinions, applauding whatever good they did. He never judged anyone. Judgment he left to God. He was truly a friend to all. I've indicated this before, but he had a strong willpower. I remember a func public function when he wanted to blow a conch shell. It seemed he had all but lost the knack for doing so. Instead of giving up with a self-deprecating smile, However, he continued determinedly through several tries until some sort of sound emerged. I can't say the sound was pure or beautiful, but it was unmistakably the sound of a conch shell. <laughs> One afternoon, after I'd served lunch for him and a few guests, he had me sit at the table with him for a time. Then he tried to flip a fork into his empty glass. Again and again he failed. When finally he succeeded, the fork broke the glass. <laughs> but I got it in. <laughs> he announced with an impish smile. I think he was teaching me a lesson in perseverance whenever I set my will to anything. His nature was enthusiastic, but never bouncy. He never reacted emotionally to anything. His enthusiasm was always an expression of his bliss in God. He always knew how to act appropriately. One time a newspaper sent two young women to interview him at a hotel. They wanted to enter his room, but he said, let's talk out here in the corridor. Both women wore provocatively low blouses. The master throughout the interview 
gazed fixedly into their eyes. After they left, they seemed disappointed. Yogananda went to the newspaper and asked the editor why he had sent them, really. If you'd invited them into your room or allowed your gaze to shift down for even a second, the editor responded, I'd have plastered that story all over the front page. That's a terrible thing to do, exclaimed Yogananda. So in that way you ruin the reputations and maybe the lives of perfectly innocent people. I call that contemptible. A newspaper should report the news, not create it. And if it, even if it does create it for editorial purposes, it should not be scurrilous. Yogananda had an amazing ability to speak insightfully on any subject. When doctors were present, he could speak to them using even their own specialized terminology. No matter what the subject, in fact, his ability to tune in to the consciousness of others made it possible for him to know everything they knew. This gift was particularly evident in his ability to know every trend in religious history without having studied that era. He was no scholar, but somehow he knew all about the history of Christianity, the special missions of Buddha, Shankaracharya, Ramanuja, Chaitanya, and he made it clear his own place in that progression. As equally, without having studied it, he understood the whole history of Christian schisms, sects, movements, and counter-movements. I myself had studied Christian history and was amazed at his insight into all of it. So there you have a few points. Um, I suppose I could go on, but 32 seems like enough. It was an amazing thing. He could be all these things and yet not be any of them. He was, in a sense, he wasn't even a human being. He was a principle. And it's a mistake to think of the guru as just a person. He's a doorway to God. And uh, when we... Many people have asked me, do I need a guru? And I say, no, you don't need one for anything. Why should you have a guru? People who think they know it all, why do they need gurus? But I'll tell you when you do need a guru, when you reach the point where you just desperately need help. When I was young, I didn't ever think of a guru. But I did reach the point where I found I was trying to perfect myself. I was trying to become better. And I found that every time, it's sort of like washing a dirty shirt. You push one side down, and the bubble comes up over here, and you push that down, moves back over here. You work on trying to be humble, and suddenly you find yourself becoming proud of your humility. You work on being generous, and you find that um, uh, other things begin to pop up. It's very, very difficult to correct yourself. If you think you have no faults, fine, you don't need a guru. <laughs> but if you do think that you need help, and I reached the point where I knew I needed help, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get it alone. Even then I wanted to do it alone. I was going to go to South America. It was really God, Divine Mother. You know, I've added a little thought to this book of mine about... Uh, that story, the beautiful story of Ram Prashan, 
Ram Prashad was a devotee of Kali. Now, when you see a picture of Kali, you see all sorts of strange things. But that isn't the Kali that appears to people in vision. The real image of Kali is only symbolic. She has four arms. The four arms, the three of them, represent creation, preservation, destruction, the three aspects of nature. And the fourth arm is a hand reaching out to offer salvation to those who seek it from her. She has a garland of skulls. And uh, you think, well, this sounds pretty bloodthirsty. But the skulls are intended to mean that she is present in all minds. And whether life or death, she's always there. She's got her hair stretched out like a harridan, but it means, means that the energy of the divine is all through creation. And she's dancing, um, and suddenly the Shiva, her husband, is lying prostrate at her feet, and she has her hand, her foot on his breast, and it looks as if she's doing it in a sense of triumph or conquest killing her own husband kind of thing. What it means is that Shiva is beyond creation, therefore he's not moving. Her dance is movement, which is the reality of creation. Everything exists in a state of vibration. And when her foot touches his breast, suddenly the dance stops. And she has her tongue out, and most people think that that tongue is out with bloodlust. But the meaning of it is much different. She's gone too far. And you know, when you make a mistake, you bite your tongue, don't you? Uh-oh, I shouldn't have done that. That's all that means. She is suddenly, uh-oh, I can't dance now. I've touched the infinite. It's a beautiful symbol. But when people see the Divine Mother in vision, they don't see that Kali image. That's only symbolic. God can come to you. Divine Mother can come to you in so many different forms. In this story of Ram Prashad, he wrote that that beautiful chant song, Emon Din Ki Hobe Matara, Chobe Tara Tara, Tara Bole, Tara Me Purve Nara. Oh, will that day ever come, come to me, Mother, when saying your name, my eyes will flow with tears of longing. And, uh, he was singing this song, and he was outside his house repairing a fence. And his little daughter came and was teasing him. And she said, Who are you singing to, Daddy? He said, I'm singing to my Divine Mother, but she's very naughty. She won't listen to me. I keep calling, and she doesn't come. And the daughter teased him, and she said, Well, but if he doesn't, she doesn't come, then why do you bother to sing to her? And laughing, she ran away. Well, when he went indoors, he told his wife about their daughter having helped mend the fence there. And his wife said, well, no, that's not possible. Your daughter, our daughter is over on the other side of town today. So when the daughter came in, he asked her, well, weren't you with me on the work when I was working on the fence? No, Daddy, I wasn't here. I was with my friends on the other side of town. And suddenly he realized it was the Divine Mother who had come to him in that form. Divine Mother is loving. She's playful. She's even mischievously playful. The relationship with her 
is a delightful thing. And when you pray to her, think of her as your friend. Don't think of her as anything else. Whenever Master saw her, I remember in the Christmas meditations, he would say, don't go. She said, oh, you're so beautiful. And then he said, you're, the material desires of the people here are driving you away. Oh, but don't go, don't go. It was so touching to see that. Remember, God is on your side. He is your friend. He would like you to play with him. Don't hide from him. If you make a mistake, don't say, well, I hope you didn't see this one gone. <laughs> Just open yourself to him. Thank God I made a mistake that time. I blew it. Help me next time. And um, you can even say to him, really, it was with your power that I made that mistake, so you're the one to blame. <laughs> it's true. He likes that. He likes absolute trusting, childlike honesty. And so the relationship with God is an ever-sweet one and ever-more blissful. Well, I'm not going to talk a long time tonight. I really, my, I'm having a little bit of a hard time breathing. But I would like to ask you if you have any questions. So, any questions? <laughs> yeah. We need that the wand. Where is the wand? Yeah, but they have to have the wand. I don't want this. Yeah, this I want. But to hear them, I want... Now, I have a little wand, which I hear in my ear. I'm deaf as a post, and you might as well... <laughs> Nayani, where is it? Yeah. Say something. Now I hear you very well. Yeah. Okay. I have a question about Eeyore. Actually, mm? <laughs> I have a question about Eeyore. <laughs> actually, um, <laughs> about you know, and Winnie the Pooh. That's what I thought you said. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it didn't make any sense. No. <laughs> actually, but it is a little about Eeyore. If someone seems to have incarnated with a strong tendency to see the gloomy side of things and to see the shortcomings and they, they life feels a bit like a burden for them because the uplifting things and the happy things go unnoticed. Would you have any guidance or advice to offer for that? You know, the trouble with people like that is that they don't want to change. There's a level of consciousness, the kind of level of energy. And when people are on that particular level, they prefer to see that way. It's only when their energy becomes higher 
that they begin to want to see things in a different way. There's a very interesting book on that subject. What's his name who wrote it? David? Or Prague? What? David Hawkins. It's very interesting. I don't completely go along with the book because I think that it, some of it is subjective. He presumes to say how high people like Moses and Jesus and Mohammed and different ones were. I don't think he has that capacity. And people excuse it by saying, well, his followers have done it. Well, if they do it and he doesn't, that shows there's something subjective to it. Nonetheless, with muscle testing, they can actually get true answers from people, and he's found that different mental attitudes apply to different levels of energy. And when your energy level is, say, 25, then uh, you just aren't going to change. When you bring it up above, I think he said 300, I'm not entirely sure, but do read the book. When you bring it above that level, then you begin to want to see things differently. But all the reasons in the world will not change a person if uh, he doesn't want to change. So at a certain level, people become bitter. At a certain level, it's a fascinating book. And uh, most people at Ananda are around 700 plus. And that's a very good level. So anyway, enough of that. Yeah? Hi, Swamiji. We have a question from somebody online, so I'll bend down and read it. It's, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Great. <clears throat> His name is Alan, and he says, Are there any stories you learned of and can share concerning the way Yogananda steered his following, followers and his organization through the depression of the 1930s? Did his depression experiences influence the way he later became so strongly and consistently an advocate of World Brotherhood colonies? I think he was born with the idea of World Brotherhood Colonies. I was born with that. At the age of 15, I already wanted to start such communities. But he did see it as a perfect answer to the Depression. He talked about it somewhat earlier, but during the Depression he talked about it more strongly. And uh, during the Depression, if you talked about his attitude, it was really very fine. He always looked for the right way. They planted tomatoes on the hillside, and they had tomato soup, and they had tomato salad, and they had tomato whatever and ever and ever, and uh, they just lived on tomatoes for a while. But it was not an easy life, and when you don't, uh, when you don't have food, do what you can. Always he had this great positive outlook on life. So yes, we are coming to a much more serious depression now. It will be much more than what they were suffering then. He said that. I believe it. And uh, communities are the best possible answer. And I really feel that what we have, we need to take out to other people. You know, one reason why the garden at Crystal Hermitage is such a lovely thing to, to have in the community is that it helps people to see that when you live communally, you don't have to live a bare-bones existence. You can have beauty around you. And I've been in many gardens in the world, in Kuchenhof, in Ireland, in England, Italy, 
India, Shalimar, in Kashmir, Nishan. I love beautiful gardens, so I've gone to them. I don't think I've ever seen one quite as beautiful as this. Bouchard is very, exp very extensive and very beautiful. But somehow I like the coziness of this one. Anyway, maybe I'm slightly prejudiced, but <laughs> <coughs> it really is beautiful. So um, he always had a positive outlook, but he wanted to do something about it and not just sit back. So that was when he began really talking about communities and the importance of them. But I was there in Beverly Hills at the Myers Garden Party when he was talking with great power about the need to start communities. It was something he had all his life. I said to Diamata in 1958, when are we going to start these communities? Her answer was, frankly, I'm not interested. Well, thank God I have been interested. I think this way of life is a very important one. It helps you to be with people of like mind who are seeking God together. Any other questions? Avital. Here she's up. <clears throat> Swamiji, thank you for being here. Um, in your biography, you state that doubt can only fully be dispersed by selfless love. And I was just wondering if maybe you could talk a little more about that. If there is love, if you love somebody, you're not going to doubt their motives. Doubts can be, can never be satisfied by answers. You can satisfy, you can answer a thousand questions, a thousand doubts, and suddenly another thousand come up. It's like that hydra-headed monster. You cut off his heads, another head comes in. And that's with doubts. The more doubts you satisfy, the more doubts get answered. They depend on a frame of mind. But when you have love, you have acceptance. When you have acceptance, you have trust. And then where is the doubt going to be? They're no longer doubts, they're questions. I asked Master probably more questions than anybody ever did. But they weren't doubting questions. A doubtful question is, I don't think you want to answer this thing. I don't think you have the integrity to answer it. But I'm going to ask it anyway to make you look foolish. That's doubt. If you have a serious question, then you should have the trust in the person to ask it also. But I have had, and he told me this, so I'm, I've never hid from you on this, my greatest trouble for many incarnations was spiritual doubt. Master said to me, you were eaten up with doubts. And then he also said, quoting Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, the doubter is the most miserable of mortals. He never can get uh, go clearly in any direction because always, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. But thank God I've overcome those doubts. And I think maybe that is what has helped me in being able to answer questions and to be able to teach other people. But I never think of myself as teaching anyone. I only try to share what I have discovered. And if it's worthwhile to other people, fine. If not, fine, I don't care. But I do want to share because I have found it helpful. 
Any other questions? Yes. Hi, Swamiji. How did your relationship with Master change when he left his body? How has it changed? When he was there, he was the focus of all my when I wanted to be with him. But when he left his body, he had given me the duty to spread his work. I remember one time I was at 29 Palms. We were, he, he often told me, you have a great work to do. And uh, he said to me one time, apart from St. Lynn, every man has disappointed me. And you mustn't disappoint me. And he spoke with so much force. <laughs> yes. And uh, I really had a desire. I have the desire to make his teachings known. I don't, I'm not trying to make him known. Whether he is known or not doesn't really matter. But what he brought to the world is important. He brought teachings that can change society, that can change civilization. And when he left his body... That's when I began thinking seriously, how can I build this work? And I've done that ever since. Okay? Yes. Swamiji, can you please um, talk about the importance of ridding oneself of cynicism and sarcasm and the best ways to go about that? To develop kindness. When you're kind to people, you see things from their point of view. And when you try to see things from their point of view, then you see that wherever they are, they're trying. So why be cynical? Why be sarcastic? Sarcastic like tries to push them down into the mud that they're trying to climb out of. And uh, sometimes a little bit is fun. Like Dorothy Taylor, Dorothy uh, Parker, and some other famous woman, and this woman said to Dorothy Parker, it was they were both coming to a door together, age before beauty. And Dorothy Parker, as she sailed through the doorway, said, um, pearls before swine. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, even that kind of fun sarcasm, unless I say it with a real smile, I don't like to use it. It's a nasty thing. Something unclean about it. Be kind to people. Try to see things from their point of view. And yes, this world is full of humor, but don't laugh at people in their faces. You can't help but see. And you know, I've developed a strange quality. And I don't know what to do with it. But everywhere I look, I see faces. I see carpets, tapestries, wood, anything. There's a face, there's a face, there's... All cartoon faces. <laughs> and there, many of them are, I, I, I could probably become a, a world-famous cartoonist <laughs> if I put all of these into shape. Of course, I won't. But uh, life is amusing. But don't hurt people with it. Always think in terms of how you can help people. There's so much more happiness in that. Any other questions?
Well, I'm not going to talk any longer. Thank you very much. What's happened is that uh, I, uh, after I talk, then I'm all out of breath for a while. This thing of getting old has certain disadvantages, <laughs> and I recommend against it. <laughs> but I think I'll be fine. Agastya has doomed me to another six years, so... Anyway, thank you all for being my friends. God bless you.